did not like it did not connect in my head that the word degenerate literally refers to jeans until I was putting together this episode because I'm a dumb dumb. <laughs> a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's Managing Editor. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And I'm Layla McNeil, uh, the other co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. And before we get into the great episode that Rebecca has researched and prepared for Pride Month, I want to thank everyone who joined us for our first live stream show back in April. It was lots of fun. Yay! At least it was for the three of us. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you missed it or weren't able to come, we did release it on our uh, feed in May, so you can still listen to it. And if you like the live stream and want us to do it again in the future, please tweet at us at at LadyXScience or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and, and let us know. And um, we have picked up some new listeners lately, so um, I do want to tell new listeners that we are on Patreon (laughs) at patreon.com slash ladyscience, and we're always in need of new patrons to keep the lights on and to keep paying our writers and editors over at the magazine. And um, you can pick annual or monthly pledges, depending on what you're able to commit to or and most comfortable with. Um, And also, like, Just so this isn't a surprise, because some people have pulled pledges because they say that we're not as active on Patreon as they'd (laughs) like us to be um, or expected us to be. So I just want to be clear, like all of the action and magic happens over on our website, (laughs) ladyscience.com and on the podcast. Um, We don't really post to Patreon. We just kind of use that as our crowdfunding um, we are doing stuff with your money, creating content and paying people and such. It's just not happening on Patreon. So <laughs> just so you know. Yeah, you're not paying me, you know, two grand every month to make one really bad video of like stop motion plastic dinosaurs. That's not what we're spending your money on, I promise. No, <laughs> the videos are great and always delight me. So <laughs> anyway, I'm done. cool uh well now let's get into things uh so it's june and uh that means that today we're bringing you a pride month episode which is something that's become a bit of an annual tradition yay Yay. Uh, (laughs) Um, for for most of our pride month episodes we've done so far uh we've looked at different aspects of queer history through the lens of lgbtq scientists Um, And you can check our archive for stories about uh, 19th century trans doctor James Barry, um, the polyamorous relationship among physicians Sarah Josephine Baker, Louise Pierce, and writer Ida A.R. Wiley, and the romantic friendships of queer women scientists throughout history. But for this year's episode, we are kind of embracing the fact that the first Pride Parade was, of course, in commemoration of a protest. And um, that's something I feel like that's really come to the fore uh, this year and in recent years, um, particularly as debates have raged about banning uniformed cops from Pride festivals, uh, 
Hell which, yeah. You know, please do. Yeah. Um, no that seems like a no brainer, but this is the world we live in. Uh, <laughs> and also, like, discussions continue about, as they always do, about things like who is Pride really for? Uh, and so this seems like a good moment to to talk about these kinds of issues. So as many of you probably know, because we've told you many times, <laughs> science with a capital S has not always been a friend to queer people. Um, in fact, since the 19th century, the scientific establishment has sought to discredit and pathologize people with non-normative desires and gender identities. And even today, you see science uh, used by those trying to quash the rights of transgender people. Transphobes of all stripes point to the science that supposedly clearly states that gender is binary or reference really, really badly designed studies claiming that the majority of transgender children detransition in adulthood, blah, 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 blah. So today we're going to talk about a couple of the ways that queer people, both inside and outside the scientific profession, have fought against the so-called science that casts them as mentally ill, genetically impaired, and otherwise sick. And the truth is that scientific consensus about queer people has never changed on its own, and it has always required protests to overturn this bunk science. And to get things started, uh, we do have to talk a little bit about where scientific ideas of queerness came from in the first place. And that means talking about our very favorite <laughs> historical <laughs> cameos, European medical men of the mid-19th century. Here they are. Ladies. Eat them up. <laughs> As we've discussed before, um, this was a moment when a lot of thinkers were trying to scientify everything. And while they made a lot of important discoveries about the world along the way, those discoveries were often tied up in some incredibly problematic ideas, many of which we have talked about on this podcast, and now we're going to talk about some more. Um, <laughs> this is the era of Darwin and germ theory, but it's also the era of eugenics and hysteria as a medical diagnosis. And as part of that, thinkers were trying to find a scientific explanation for homosexuality. They were mostly interested in finding a scientific explanation for why some men were attracted to other men. And they were, at this time, uh, much less concerned about why women were attracted to other women, though ideas about queer women did end up getting folded into their theories about men. Um, there were two prevailing theories, and interestingly, they were both at first not presented in a way that inherently condemned homosexuality. The first idea was that people who were attracted to the same gender constituted a quote-unquote third sex. This idea was espoused by a number of German writers who, um, interesting enough, used the theory as a way to protest Prussia's anti-sodomy laws. One of the major proponents was a man named Karl Heinrich Ulrichs, who hypothesized that some men were born with a woman's spirit trapped in their body, and some women were born with a man's spirit trapped in their body. And more importantly, he treated that as totally fine and normal <laughs> and um, gained the support of a lot of gay German intellectuals. Now today, we see this as a pretty problematic conflation of sexuality, gender representation, and gender identity. But that was pretty common at the time, and it remained common through the 19th and 20th century. 
Uh, the other main theory was a little more straightforward and did not involve spirits. Uh, and this is one that we are pretty familiar with today. Um, the theory said, you know, there, there aren't spirits, but homosexuality is a genetic variant like any other genetic variant. Um, this is, you know, the time when people are finding out about genes and all that kind of stuff, and they're excited about sticking that label on everything, in fact. Um, and that sounds pretty good, especially when we see it through the lens of how the kind that's, that language is used today. And, well, it was first proposed, like the third sex theory, as a reason to get rid of anti-sodomy laws. Um, but this one was very quickly taken up by eugenicists, because they were the ones who were super interested about genetics. And once geneticists get a hold of idea, you know things are just going to get real bad. There's, there's no uphill from there. <laughs> so today we tend to think of the idea that queer people are, as the song goes, born this way, um, as a progressive statement. Uh, but in the 19th and early 20th century, uh, scientists who espoused this theory basically said, sure, homosexuality is genetic, it's a genetic disease. Mm. And like all genetic diseases, it should be treated and should be removed from the gene pool. Um, so according to them, homosexuals are like poor people or like disabled people or like non-white people. They have bad genes. You might even say that they were in fact degenerate. Eugenicists were particularly concerned with the idea that homosexuality among men and women, when they kind of finally start talking about women instead of just, they were roommates. Uh, <laughs> um, they're particularly concerned that this is going to halt procreation. Um, they also conflated mannish women and effeminate men with homosexual genetics. And, wouldn't you know it, they claimed that those characteristics tended to show up in populations that eugenicists were already working to suppress, like poor people and non-white people. <laughs> Thus, according to American doctor William Lee Howard, queer people were only born to parents of degenerate classes who already lacked, quote, strong sex characteristics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, I don't know, this, this was just like... There's there's so much out there about like medicalization of things, uh, and this just kind of falls in so many ways directly in line with this idea of medicalizing things that were like either negative or positive characteristics in the past, but for other reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, One of the things I find interesting about the idea of homosexuality and genetics is that unlike in the 19th century progressive scientists now are trying to find a gay gene in the sense to push back against the idea that it's a lifestyle and people choose to live this way um, and that they can, you know, look at the science and be like, see, people are born this way. It's not a lifestyle. We need to stop saying that it's a lifestyle and that it's a choice because people are born this way. And it's still going back to the genes differently than in the 19th century, but also still propping up this idea that something has to have some sort of scientific basis for it to be valid and for us to see gay people as people. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I don't know. I the, the way that since the 19th century, using genetics to talk about 
the causes or origins or whatever of homosexuality has changed. And it's really interesting. And usually it, even though the attention is good right now to try to give it a scientific underpinning, I don't think it really gets past the fact that gay people are people and <laughs> they don't need to be legitimized through genetics to be people. Yeah. And I think the other really important lesson from this is that like, yeah, there are differences in the way that like these, the genetics of this are being pursued in the 19th century versus now. But also I think there is like a very straightforward kind of one-to-one lesson to learn here about like who's going to co-opt that Mm -hmm. um, and what are they going to do with it? Because it's like you said, Rebecca, when the eugenicists get their hands on stuff, it just (laughs) never goes well. Yeah. And we we I we do have like a resurgent problem with eugenics right now sure. that we're dealing yeah. with. And it's kind yeah. of scary. Yeah. Yeah. So all of that said, there were almost immediately queer men and women who subversively subversively celebrated this idea of being quote degenerate and who of were Of course there were. Yeah. <laughs> of course there were. <laughs> who were comforted by the idea that they were, in fact, born that way. Um, as American playwright Natalie Barney wrote in her autobiography, quote, I considered myself without shame. Albinos aren't reproached for having pink eyes and whitish hair. Why should they hold it against me for being a lesbian? In the book Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, a favorite here on this podcast, it seems. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It's what I always turn to when I'm doing a gay episode, let's be real. It's a good one. Um, Lillian Faderman, the author, talks about some of the ways that queer women found freedom in this idea that they were unnaturally mannish. It gave them a way to explain their ambition or the fact that they enjoyed sex or even that they preferred to wear men's clothes. Faderman includes this quote from a woman who lived in Austin, Texas in the early 20th century. Quote, I'm a lesbian because of genetics. I'm sure my great-grandmother and grandmother were lesbians, even though they never came out. They rebelled against playing traditional roles. They smoked, hunted, did carpentry at home. And they let me know that it was okay for a young girl to do those things. Even though that is a pretty narrow way, I think, of, of describing queerness, that didn't reflect the experiences of all women. It's really neat to see how some women were able to turn their degeneracy on its head. I think that's also a theme of this podcast is finding those places where women are like, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) I'll just turn whatever that is on its head and make it work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, like the name of our uh, podcast and magazine, in fact. Oh, yeah, yes. please stop getting on to us about our the name of our podcast and magazine. <laughs> Do we? Come on, we're millennials. We're doing it ironically, guys. You should know how this goes. Yeah, I mean, in an age where there's bitch magazine, you should <laughs> understand, like, irony and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so this embracing of degeneracy, uh, a eugenicist idea, really became part of queer protest. So um, you see examples in the book Queer London, where historian Mac, Matt Halbrook talks about how effeminate gay men and what we'd kind of now call trans women in the 1920s would play up their femininity in public in order to make straight cis people uncomfortable. 
Um, there's also stories about the Stonewall Uprising, where, for example, patrons of the Stonewall Inn not only fought with police, but also danced with each other, and just generally had a grand old time being themselves in public. Uh, I think one of the great things about the Stonewall story is that not only was it, like, a three-day, like, protest, but it was a three-day dance party, as far as, like, it seems like from various people's descriptions. (laughs) Okay, but Rebecca, who threw the first brick? (laughs) Oh, no. I was oh, no. gonna start weeping. <laughs> uh, so, for folks like these, uh, performing their sexuality, their so-called degeneracy, um, was in and of itself a protest. And you do see this in debates today over whether Pride Festival should be family-friendly and what that even means. Um, Part of the spirit of queer protest is using this idea that queer folks are degenerate to make people uncomfortable. And while we usually think of uh, this kind of protest as based in resisting anti-queer religious morality, which is kind of how it's used, I think, a lot today, um, it's also a part of this history of resisting anti-queer science, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just this morning, the debate about kink being allowed at Pride was trending on Twitter. You know, I don't I don't care. Um <laughs> but it like it feels like by saying what kinds of gay people can come to pride is like trying to perform some sort of politics of respectability for straight cis people um rather than making it a celebration for all LBGTQ people, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's my view on it. Don't yeah. tweet at me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I do think, yeah, it's interesting because some of the like debate has sometimes bubbled up uh, among younger queer people. Uh, and then, and some of the pushback has been from older queer people, um, who are kind of like, no, the whole point of pride parades was to make everyone really uncomfortable. And while, uh, and like, even acknowledging that maybe that has changed somewhat, uh, I think there's a value to a lot of people who, um, grew up in the era of performing degeneracy was like one of the main tools folks had to protest on a day-to-day basis, um, Holding on to that in some form is is still important. Uh, yeah. yeah. I find that to be kind of a fascinating switcheroo of generational roles as yes. well. Like, it's not usually the older people in a group that wants to let the freak flag fly. <laughs> you know, they're usually the ones that are clutching their pearls about something. And it's usually the younger ones that are all like, ah. so i find that to be a really interesting um uh switch that not really used to um but when we are talking about who pride is for it is not for cops no no it is not for cops no i think we can all agree on that (laughs) i think yes 100 percent it's like this like what about gay what about the gay cops like i don't care they're still cops and that's pride the kink is dressing up like a kinky cop. Yes. Oh yeah, no, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Just that so you you can't say that your kink is being an actual cop employed at a 
police department. No. That's no. not that's no. not yeah. kink. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Not allowed. So by the middle of the 20th century, eugenics had well, sort of fallen out of fashion. Jeez. <laughs> At least in the mainstream. And with it, so had the idea that homosexuality was a genetic disease. But don't worry, because the scientific community will always find ways to condemn things like this as an illness. So if it's not a genetic disease, um, and all of the kind of classification of it coming from genetics, the anti-queer sentiment instead began to come from the new fields of psychology and psychiatry. And queer people still found ways to fight back. So, inspired by our old buddy, Sigmund Freud. What's up, bro? How you been? <laughs> it's been a minute. It has been a minute. Uh, psychoanalysts of the mid-20th century treated homosexuality and gender nonconformity as symptoms of deeper neuroses that needed to be treated or even eliminated. Instead of being a kind of genetic disease, it was now a kind of mental illness. And by the 1950s, the idea that homosexuality could be cured with psychotherapy had come very much into vogue, um, something that it should be noted that Freud didn't actually believe. But I don't why ruin a good time, you know, <laughs> being a Freudian by actually, like, doing what Freud advocated yeah. for. Yeah. Um, so here's Lillian Faderman again, writing about one such psychoanalyst in Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers, quote, Edmund Burglar actually promised his patients that same-sex love was reversible, but only through psychoanalytical treatment by a psychiatrist for one or two years with a minimum of three appointments each week at the cost of as much as $60,000, calculated in present dollars. And that was present dollars in, like, the early 1990s. BG yeah, Dubs, when she wrote that book. When this book was published. <laughs> Oh so God. that's just like conversion therapy. Yeah. yeah. Basically. Very expensive, expensive conversion therapy. <laughs> I know. Why do that when you can get it from for free from a church? <laughs> um and so it is no surprise that when the first diagnostic and statistical manual, commonly called the DSM, was published in 1952. Homosexuality was listed as a type of, quote, sociopathic personality disturbance. When the DSM-2 was published in 1968, homosexuality and transvestism were both classified as, quote, sexual deviations along with pedophilia, exhibitionism, and necrophilia. Yeah, all those are the same. Yep. Yep. Uh, so the wild thing is, if none of this is wild <laughs> enough, by, by 1968, gay rights groups like the Daughters of Belitis and the Mattachine Society had been around for almost two decades. The Stonewall Uprising would happen a year later and the first Pride Parade a year after that. In 1968, the United States was on the cusp of what people tend to consider the modern gay rights movement, and the American Psychiatric Association was doubling down on the idea that homosexuality was a sickness. And in fact, it was only five years later, in 1973, when homosexuality was more or less removed from the DSM. So the whole story of how this happened is um, pretty fascinating. And if you're interested in learning particularly about the role of gay psychiatrists in the effort, um, I highly recommend the Older This American Life episode, 81 Words, uh, which is, yeah, I think it's fascinating. Um, 
We're going to focus here, though, on the efforts of one activist in particular uh, who played a pivotal role in removing homosexuality from the DSM, um, Barbara Giddings. Uh, so by the 1970s, Giddings had been an activist for many years, um, and she had served as the editor of the lesbian magazine The Ladder, which was the magazine of the Daughters of Bolitis, and had led protests in the 1960s in Philadelphia um, against laws that allowed people to be fired for being gay. Um, there's a Barbara Giddings way in Philly, which always makes me happy. Oh, cool. Uh, um, she saw psychiatry's opinion of homosexuality to be a serious roadblock to equal rights. Um, so in a t 2006 speech, she said, quote, It's difficult to explain to anyone who didn't live through that time the extent to which homosexuality was under the thumb of psychiatry. The sickness label was an albatross around the neck of the, our early gay rights groups. It infected all our work on other issues. Anything we said on our own behalf could be dismissed with, Quote, that's just your sickness talking. The sickness label was used to justify discrimination, especially in employment and particularly by our own government. And so she, along with her friend and collaborator, Frank Kameny, and her partner, Kay Lawson, sought to get the DSM changed. One of the interesting things about Giddings is that while she was part of a white middle class tradition of gay protest that was really into respectability politics, she also wasn't afraid to make a scene. In 1970, she helped organize a major protest at the APA's annual convention, which that year was held in San Francisco. Activists infiltrated the convention and disrupted panels on conversion therapy, at one point managing to take the microphone away from a speaker to demand a voice. They also stormed the halls looking for Irving Bieber, the psychiatrist who came up with the theory that men became gay because of overbearing mothers. Um... <laughs> This sounds amazing. Yeah, I just, I love the idea of them like, you know what? You put your name on this paper and we know you're here, so we're going to find you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we just want to talk. We just want to talk. So the APA gave in to these demands to be heard. Um, and the 1971 convention included a panel titled Lifestyles of Non-Patient Homosexuals, which Giddings and company jokingly called the lifestyles of impatient homosexuals, <laughs> which is great. Uh, <laughs> and of course, there were still plenty of anti-gay panels to disrupt, and both Giddings and Kameny took the opportunity to protest ses sessions on aversion therapy and harass psychiatrists touting gay cures. Giddings and Kameny also organized a panel at the 1972 convention that featured a psychiatrist who was gay. Knowing that he would lose his job if he was outed, Dr. John Fryer agreed to appear under the name Dr. H. Anonymous and took part in the panel wearing a rubber mask to protect his identity. And there will be a photo to that in yes. the show notes. Yes, it's, it's great. It's one of those weird halloween rubber masks like i don't think it's actually a nixon rubber mask but that's kind of what you got a picture <laughs> oh when you look God. at this photo like it's the whole face weird yeah <laughs> oh man i'm gonna go to aha in a nixon mask and just cause trouble <laughs> <laughs> thanks to their efforts and that of so many other people the apa removed homosexuality from the dsm in 1973 replacing it with the diagnosis ego dystonic homosexuality which essentially says that gay people could be treated if they were unhappy being gay. 
Ego discerning homosexuality was then removed from the DSM in the 1980s. But obviously that didn't mean that the fight against anti-queer science is over. It was only in 2013 that gender identity disorder was removed from the DSM and was replaced with gender dysphoria, uh, which is probably a term a lot of people have heard at this point. While the goal of that change was to provide trans people with a path to receiving psychological care during transition, many activists say that the framing will still lead to stigmatization for trans people. And you can see transphobes today. Uh, I see them all the time on Twitter, for instance, leaning on quote unquote the science to support their hateful views. Here's that line from Barbara Giddings that we shared earlier. The sickness label was an albatross around the neck of our early gay rights groups. It infected all our work on other issues. Anything we said on our own behalf could be dismissed with, that's just your sickness talking. The sickness label was used to justify discrimination, especially in employment and particularly by our own government. And so I think you could probably say the exact same thing about the fight for trans rights today. Yep. Yeah, I think the discourse about trans rights has become so poisoned by the discourse about science Mm -hmm. that is entwined with it in like and purposefully so by transphobes in like very cynical and very like um, disingenuous ways. A lot of just like outright outright lying about the science. It's. It's really bad, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bad out there. It's, yeah, it's it is like we we mentioned earlier at the top of the episode, um, you know, studies that are like, oh, everyone detransitions. There there is so many bad faith studies out there that are yeah. still cited by people who sh- eat like both transphobes and people who should know better. Mm-hmm. Like, just it's considered like peer-reviewed science in in some instances or there are things where it was just like an idea that was posed like what is it the rapid onset gender dysphoria whatever it was the whole theory that like if kids have trans friends that they'll like become trans overnight um so that's social contagion theory and yeah it's, it's yeah. just very problematic oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like even things like a scientist, a transphobic scientist will just like vaguely propose an idea like that. And then everyone's so excited to be able to say, oh, well, you know, a scientist said this, even if it's a scientist who doesn't know anything about shit. Um, it must be true. Yeah. And I think obviously this is something that we talk about and around and through on the podcast <laughs> all the time. But the... The discourse about science in the Western world right now and about objectivity and expertise and, um, like, authority is so toxic (laughs) and so distorted and so, like, invested in scoring political points and, Mm -hmm. like, warping you know, our perception of, like, marginalized people, that it is, like, it is just a morass. And I think, you know, know, one of the things that we try to do as often as we possibly can is talk about that, that, like, 
there is no such thing as objectivity in the way that you mean it. Like that's a that is a a construction of science and of the kind of social structures of science. And it's important to talk about that because it's not it isn't just a matter of like, oh well, you know, we're all just a bunch of like um liberal cultural relativists and nothing means anything and everything's postmodern whatever. Uh <laughs> Yeah. Uh, what it means in this context is that is that it's being weaponized against really vulnerable people, and people are getting hurt. Yeah. Well, like, and it's, it's like a lot of people seem to uh, choose when science is objective and when it's not. Uh-huh. Like, I guess it's science is objective when, like, I watched a video of a of a anti-vax nurse who was trying to stick metal to her body to show that the covid vaccine makes you magnetic um but you know she's a nurse she's she's she knows because she's a nurse and she knows all about how vaccines work but you know um it's somehow not objective for people who don't think climate science is legitimate and that climate change is real. So, I mean, there's a lot of like bad faith people out there who throw uh, science being objective around only when it suits their own needs and their own ends and their own worldview. And so like, that's not objective either. It's not objective at any point in the turtles all the way down (laughs) at no point. (laughs) Another tragically fascinating thing about the lack of objectivity in this in the particular case of the DSM, which is obviously like a wildly problematic document in general. Sure. But part of the argument from uh, sort of trans health experts to keep gender dysphoria in the DSM, which is honestly not a, it's, this is actually an argument that I understand, but mm-hmm. it's awful that it has to be made. Uh, and that's the, that's how you can make sure that health insurance will cover Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. therapy for people who are in vulnerable situations Mm -hmm. is that that means that someone who's trans and therefore because of all this like stuff happening in the world and even if not you know what there are trans people who are extremely privileged who are still like i am making a major life decision i would like to talk to someone about that um and the only way to then get that paid for is to have a therapist be able to check a box on a form. Mm-hmm. And so just like the, and, and there's, it's also tied in this idea that like, I think folks aren't willing to let go of the idea that there's something weird about folks with non-normative gender identities, which is why it was only in 2013 that uh, gender identity disorder was taken out. Um, But there's also this, like, weird practical reason that's swept up in the way our, the the economics of how healthcare works in the U.S., which no one asked for. (laughs) Okay, so we have to somehow describe this as, like, an illness in some sense in order for trans people to access the resources that they need to transition. Yeah. Um, So in that sense, we have decided that that is healthcare. Right. Yeah. But then that doesn't apply for trans people in like prison who uh, want to continue their transition through hormone therapy or whatever. 
but now it's in that context denied to them because now it's not healthcare anymore. Now it's like an excess or cosmetic or something like that. So it's like, we also get to, I guess we also get to pick and choose when, (laughs) when, you know, trans people get to access the healthcare that, you know, we're saying that they can have because it's an illness and it only applies to certain trans people in certain contexts. Yeah. And just to bring it around to what we were talking about earlier with like the resurgence of like eugenic thinking, particularly in the United States, picking and choosing when people get to have health care because of your political or ideological views about their bodies or uh, their desires or whatever, that's eugenics. That's how you like... <laughs> That's how you like. Hi, that's eugenics. Yeah, hi, it's eugen. It's your old friend eugenics here again. That's how you wipe out classes of people that you don't like. Yeah, hi God, it's me, G- eugenics. <laughs> you up, bro? <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> oh my God, I I don't want to talk about this in any extent to detract from what we're talking about. Um, me and Anna did a book event um last week and someone in the audience asked us a question about um you know how how do we move how does science how does the scientific community and then everyday people in the world and institutions move away from antiquated things that don't work anymore like bloodletting and she also mentioned eugenics and i was like oh oh honey (laughs) i was like eugenics is still here still amongst us and like there was like a a weird feeling that went out in and we had already said some pretty radical stuff i think at that point it's a little so spicy it, it was a little spicy so it was kind <laughs> of strange that me just saying the e word out loud like the effect that that caused oh, on man. on the crowd it was really it was really <laughs> strange so i think that is it's still just like something super uncomfortable for people to confront and deal with and to think about how maybe they participate not in like the actual practicing of eugenics on other people but entertain Mm -hmm. eugenic ideas and you know I think that that's really uncomfortable for people yeah and it's also like I, I don't know I feel like just really making driving this point home when you say things like stupid people shouldn't be allowed to vote that's what we're talking about, like, yeah. or that you should have to take it. You should have to take an IQ test yeah. to vote or something, yeah. or you should have to take an IQ test to have kids. That is actually that is that's straight. That's, that's classic. Literally was used as eugenics. Grade yeah. A uncut eugenics. So like, <laughs> maybe think about what you're actually saying when you say stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah, I I think that unfortunately most people have spoken have expressed opinions about who they think should or should not have children because of some category they belong to. It's so much in, like, so much of, like, the world, the ocean we swim in, the air we Mm -hmm. breathe. Mm -hmm. Um, And, yeah, it's just, I don't have, I actually have somewhere to go with that. But just, like, it's, it's good to remember that there are so many ideas that we still cling on to in all of these random ways. And it doesn't mean that you're a monster because you once had a thought that is related to this, but you got to be aware of where all this stuff is coming from and that it's coming from the same places that you would think were obviously horrifying. 
Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mean to be like, oh, no, no, no. If you no, ever think- had this <laughs> thought, you're a monster. Just that, like, yeah. it's very insidious and it's very much a part of American culture, I think. Yeah. And the way that it, I mean, it has been used um, by maybe not the big bad eugenicists, you know, that we've talked about on this show before, um, but it has been used by progressive groups um to advocate for various kinds of social change um and so there are ways that eugenics has and can sound good and you know that's so if you have thought about that that you know that you're not the only one you know and it, it it just takes being aware um and thinking critically about about these types of things but yeah i mean since the early 20th century, progressive groups have been, you know, trafficking in eugenic thought and eugenic practice. Oh, yeah. And it's worth remembering that eugenics was a progressive project. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't like a conservative project. Mm-hmm. So, it's oh, a lot of eugenics talk. Oh. Okay. Let's yeah. talk about, okay, what can we end on that's um, not eugenics? Let's, oh, you know what, since we're talking, <laughs> since we're talking about, uh, since we're ending talking about transgender folks uh, fighting bad science, uh, let's throw out that we have a couple of really fabulous pieces on the Lady Science website that are by trans scientists about their experiences. Um, and the these pieces, I think, really demonstrate the way that, uh, folks' gender identities have informed the way that they practice science, and they have been open about that, and that's, I think, really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll put links in the show notes. Yeah. And didn't you say that Barbara Gidding's partner yes. recently passed? Yes. Mm-hmm. She recently passed away. That uh, was Kay Lawson, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and we will, they're, they're making gay history, uh, the podcast did, and it did edit an um, episode about the two of them in particular that includes interviews. We'll include that in the show notes. Um, they're pretty adorable. Like, these two are adorable. <laughs> if you read the two of them ch- chatting with each other about causing all this trouble, uh, it's it's amazing. Um, so also highly recommend that. Well, R.I.P. Kitty Lawson. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a good place to end. Um so if you liked our episode today, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions for us about any of the topics we discussed, tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read articles and essays, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadyScience.com. We are an independent magazine, and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience.